the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get going with our discussion, just wanted to mention we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Do consider throwing us a buck a month to help defray some of the costs of production. But today, Taylor and I are returning to one of Freud's juicy case histories. This one's titled, again, Notes Upon a Case History or a case of obsessional neurosis, affectionately referred to as as Ratman. Here we are for part two, Taylor. What you, what are you thinking after our first foray into this case? I think this guy's a fucking asshole. <laughs> yeah. I think Ratman is 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 a genuine piece of shit. Right. Um now that we got that out of the way. <laughs> no, he's a he's a very interesting character, you know. Um and we hit upon some of the things that I found suspect for, you know, the way he meets Freud, he wants this little doctor's note so he can do his little, his little weird comedy with the exchange of the money that he owes to the, to the lady at the post office and yada, yada, yada. We've talked a little bit about that stuff. I won't, we won't immediately start there. And him having potentially have read a little bit of Freud, probably more than Freud says he has. He's at least looked through the psychopathology of everyday life. And Freud seems to reproduce one of their sessions you know, where Freud is kind of feeding him little bits and um, pieces of psychoanalytic theory that are in truth incomplete. He's like trying to set up the rat man, set the traps, like we said, and give him, he's really trying to get some of the repressed unconscious material to float up to the surface and help mm-hmm. dislodge some of that stuff. We can even use like constipation metaphors, right? He's the rat man is, overly constipated and he's he's in his obsessive compulsive neurosis as freud says which usually involves both men and intellectually um, advanced precocious astute men you know he's always he's making lots of associations that he's not even aware of Uh, he's forming all these little verbal substitutions and he's oscillating very rapidly between love and hate freud calls it ambivalence Lacan says it should never be called ambivalence. It should really be called hate admiration, right? This love-hate word that he crafts. And so we see the rat man in, in all aspects of life towards others, including other men, especially this oscillation between a kind of admiration and love and, and a kind of hate and rivalry. We see Freud takes advantage of this a couple of times with 
the transference in the analytic situation, which I know that we only really touched upon a little bit last time with the rat man having a fantasy that the girl he meets on those footsteps of Freud's office is Freud's daughter. It's not, but he has this, he has this fascination that Freud's daughter sort of greets him as he's going into a session and it leads the rat man to go into this fantasy that, Hey, Freud is grooming me to be his son-in-law. And that's why he's putting up with all my, my wild, crazy bullshit that itself shows an ambivalence toward himself, right? Where he not only has this megalomaniacal idea that Freud, this, this conceit, the self-conceit that Freud would put up with, with him. But in that very same movement, he knows that Freud should really find him a detestable person. So it is this interesting fluctuation, even towards himself that he rarely, we rarely get to see in the case history, but that's a good example of it. What, 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 you had a number of places, a number of things that you wanted to discuss that we didn't have time for last time. Is yeah. there one you want to start off our romp today with? Yeah. I think maybe one of them that I think would help. And I mean, maybe I should, the prelude to this would be that the narrative elements or the narrative is such a powerful tool in and exploring the psychoanalysis, the psychoanalytic theories, not only in the sense of these, or for its case histories, which often read in this sort of novelistic way, and they're very, they're very explicit. There's a lot of, there's a lot of sex. There's a lot of salacious sort of details. His molestation of the women, the his nieces or whatever, whomever he is playing the kindly uncle to, right? Yeah, he's like a god uncle too, if you could use that term, right? He's it's not clear that he's related to the families of the girls, but he plays like the friendly uncle right. to these young women, some of whom are of marrying age, but we have to know that at that time, they, they could still be in their early teens. Right, right. Even if they're married. And so, yes, you're right. To, he takes advantage of that charitableness, of that, of that welcome. I mean, he's welcome not only into their home, but to chaperone these young girls. And he... You know, he takes them out on these picnics and then they procrastinate too long and they miss the train. We know how how the train, we talked a little bit about the train working right, right. in some of his his problems, but he takes advantage of that to stay overnight with them in hotel rooms and sneak into their room and masturbate them. Which, which they don't complain about, at least which, which to he, him, yes. which is obviously a... Uh, as a victim, right? You probably, they're fucking terrified, right? They're not going to. Yeah, they're not going to. And and he doesn't, you know, it's interesting that we only talked about this a little bit last time because there was so much going on, but it's good to revisit this. And you're right. I mean, this is part of the the narrative that Freud doesn't really spend a lot of time on, but, but you're right. The case histories have this narrative element and we get, it's like a novella in pieces. It's, it's, it's always in pieces. These these cases, whether it be Little Hans, which was written in the same year, interestingly, or The Wolfman, which we'll look at, which is written in 1918 at the height of the First World War. It is interesting that we we really get a discontinuous kind of novella. And sometimes it's out of chronological order as well, because Freud is building in this way as, as a kind of master storyteller in his own right, he is building the elements in an, in an order, in a linearity that he wants us to follow, which sometimes doubles back on itself 
and loops forward. It has, it's metaphorically like a train track with different, you know, routes that, that are taking different detours to get us to see some of these pieces in, in light of certain elements. And yeah, the, the taking advantage of the girls, I think is a consequence of his, you know, his early Freud has in 1896, Freud will have this theory that hysterics, which he will continue to think are generally feminine. Right. Hysterics undergo these passive sexual experiences in their early childhood. Mm -hmm. And that leads to a certain type of symptom formation. He will say, on the other hand, with obsessives, which are mostly masculine, obviously there are exceptions, but obsessives are mostly masculine. In the same period, he will say that they generally, in this 1896 paper, he will say they generally, it's the opposite. They have these active sexual encounters. So, mm -hmm. for example, we remember <laughs> the governess, when it right. is three, there's a kind of mixture where it's both passive and active, but at least it's not being done to him. He's right, right. crawling under her skirt and feeling her, her belly and her, her genitals. So it is more active than not. Right. Now, later on... Yeah, she's um, not... It's never explicitly stated that she touches him in any way. Exactly. Exactly. It's not. And with the second governess, one of the things that makes him cry is that they make this lewd gesture that his younger son, they could sexually Brother. abuse him, but not but not himself. Now, whether that's a fantasy invented, it's really interesting, again, that he is rejected as a target for the passive, potentially hysterical sexual traumas. Right. It's all active, at least in the narrative. And, and what Freud does in 1908 with... You know what's interesting, too, is like this almost... The discussion of the hysteria relating to un i guess sort of un a more passive sexual experience mm -hmm. right which is precisely the type of experience that he describes whenever he's molesting these that's right his his quote unquote nieces right that's right yeah that's what i was going to say in in 1908 freud says he has to abandon that theory as the passive active for hysteria uh, passive obsessional active he has to abandon that and say it's incorrect but if if we look at this case history freud had at least a kernel of truth there seemingly yeah. and one of the things that i think that the rat man gets angry at freud for when freud says aren't you harming these girls right by not washing your hands by not washing with your dirty hands right because no knowing freud obviously he's kind of trolling there a little bit yeah um you know the rat man doesn't get triggered about the dirty hands. He gets triggered about harming these girls. But if Freud had persisted or had written further, because apparently the scene's cut off and the rat man doesn't come back, what Freud could have said was very well knowing all of the cases he had been practicing psychoanalysis for over a decade. You know, he could have said what the rat man is doing is he is continuing this cycle, cycle of sexual of abuse. Right, right, right. He is very much so doing that, um, whatever yeah. their age. Now, it seems like they would be, these girls would be past the, for Freud, the critical yes, threshold. Yes, exactly. Yeah, they're not, they're, they're not three. probably not six, seven, even. Right. Yeah, they're I mean, like at least prepubescent, 12 and above, right. one would assume. Right, I mean, for Freud, he wants to say that the hysterical, the primal traumas, you know, date back to like age, you know, three to five. 
But right. still, um, we also know with Freud's understanding of memory that a lot of times what he will say is it's not the original trauma that hysterics or neurotics suffer from in general. It's he will say hysterics suffer from rem reminiscences. And what he means by that is this reactivation of the memories in the present, which may or may not have a sexual experience in the present linked to it. But we know that given the surroundings, given the, the relationship of trust, right? Him playing the beneficent uncle, given that they're taken advantage of and, and seduced in a way that is not, is outside of the confines of courtly love, right? Of sanctioned societal advances, right? Towards the opposite sex. The fact that they are completely passive, you know, at least in the story, in the narrative of him sneaking in and, and masturbating them, supposedly without himself coming right in the moment and, uh, and whatnot, you know, that, that there is, there is this possibility that he reactivates some traumatic kernels, whether it be in fantasy or in ex actually experienced in, in the past. So yeah, that's one of the reasons why he's a dirty, he's a, he's a dirty little fuck. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's so interesting that Freud even includes that almost as an aside in the narrative, right. because we could have gotten 99.9% .9 of that story of the rat man without that incident true but freud right. feels yes. it's significant enough to include and what we can imagine is why the rat man gets so mad is that he knows unconsciously that he right. is he's perpetuating committed. that he's done something that's not not cool you know and it is interesting too that he chooses these younger girls to to who are already you know, in a position to look up to him and right. all of this, because we know that he doesn't have sex till 26. So he might've been perpetuating this, these molestations, these, you know, these masturbations before even he had had actual vaginal penetration of another woman. So there's, there's something too in his sexual life that is bound up with this kind of deferred infantile, this deferred fear of the sexual act or this deferred anxiety surrounding the sexual act proper. And so they are very, very good targets and victims for him. And he even uses as an excuse that some of them are married, right? Some of them get fucked on the daily. So it doesn't matter, right? They're not, right. they're loose women. They're not innocent is, is, is his implication, which is another way to try to try to again, protest, and vindicate himself and say he's not perpetuating a crime when that conflict is, you know, if that were true, he wouldn't have gotten pissed off and stormed out. Right. Two ways to take this. One, I think I was thinking after the first episode that the memento, the film memento has some purchase here in the sense that how Freud emphasizes that memory or forgetting is a big component to i mean you can see this in the way that the rat man creates this unsolvable sort of narrative with the debt that's owed right yes and so how that carries over to memento is the main character memento his wife they're attacked in the middle of the night his wife is raped etc he stumbles upon it and he's hit on the head that causes this anterior this amnesia to happen 
where he is incapable of making new memories. So how this manifests itself is he ends up in this position where he's taking his own file of his own case and he's redacting and he's removing elements from the evidence of the case so that he can sort of – and again, tying into the whole amnesia element, which we can see in you know, expressing itself via Ratman is he's creating this whole narrative that's unsolvable. So he's making the narrative recollection, I guess the history, so disjointed that it can sort of apply to any object. And that's an interesting thing in terms of desire, I think, that I won't go into, but just to make a note of that, right? No, and it, it's, it's beautiful. And the, and the fact that the memories are literally inscribed on his body, right? He inscribes these memories. Via the tattoos, yes, yes, yes. On his, on his tattoos. And that is, is highly you know, significant in a psychoanalytic sense. Right. And metaphorically, uh, even going to you know, Antiedipus and the, the recording surface, right? The yep, skin. The, the recording surface, the, the yeah, ephemeral and, skin. And the way that hysteric symptoms through conversion take on a somatic expression in the body, all that is is kind of highlighted. And I think the memento is a is a is a great example of for generally any case history, but especially this one. And it's interesting because you know, Freud will 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 detail at least two, but we can we can obviously see many more. Um, two big amnesias. One is obviously. The rat man, it's claimed that he remembers everything from age five onward. Now, we, we, we see that that's not true, but the claim is fascinating because it sheds light on his first sexual encounters he remembers after the fact. And that, that notion of an after the fact of a return is always very important for Freud because that his memory of age three crawling under his, the governess's uh, skirt, touching her genitals, that is only reactivated either after the father's death or sometime around the, the analysis proper, right? So that is a, we could call it a primal repressed memory or whatever you want to say. That's a big amnesia that he only remembers after the fact. And Freud has a great kind of footnote on this where he says that that when we think about judging the reality of these childhood memories of these traumas, like for example, that memory we just talked about, that one that was repressed of crawling under the skirt. He says, um, childhood memories are only laid down at a later age, usually in puberty, when they undergo a complicated process of revision entirely analogous to the way in which a race creates the sagas of its ancient history. I think that's very fascinating to think about Freud using this, this notion of um, the way that sagas and legends are written down after the fact. And, and we see that in, you know, like in um, like the Nordic sagas, you know, they were only written down sort of in the medieval ages, even if the, their oral history goes back another thousand plus years. You can see that across all kinds of literatures, right, of oral history and, um, and the writing proper down of of these histories and these myths. So there's something interesting about that. And already in that context, that means that these memories reactivated have a kind of aura to them that yeah. includes, you know, libidinal investment. Uh, they're, they're already kind of shrouded with, um, 
with a kind of revisionary aspect. And the second big amnesia is this period after his father's death and the 18 months in between for mourning to, to reactivate, to actually activate the, um, the obsessional neurosis proper, right? He may have been primed for it, but, you know, Freud kind of points out that it's not, it's not when the father dies that he immediately kind of succumbs to the neurosis. There may have been some components flying around, but he really only becomes incapacitated 18 months later. And so there is, again, kind of like the latency period between the ages of five and 11, or even that, you know, period of reactivation in puberty, there is this incubation period of some of these memories of some of these um, conflicts that, yeah. that take time to, to coalesce into a complex that will render the rat man basically unable to make any decisions, you know, unable to really carry out actions. And even when he makes decisions doing so at the same time by like, by consciously having a no attached to it, like, don't, I need to do, I must do that. No, I can't, you know, like that immediate uh, kind of, you know, the counterfactual, that, that counteractual. Recall Freud saying there's a sanction element. That's part of kind of what you're getting at there. That the decision is, is accompanying with, with a sanction, with a a reprimand. Yeah. Yeah. And how, you know, part of this is tied to the, the two great poles in his life of his father and this right. lady he supposedly wants to marry, <laughs> you know, and we know that the father didn't want him to marry her. He wanted him to marry up like he did. So speaking of uncles, I don't know if you remember, cause we, we didn't really delve into the theoretical remarks like we did True. last time. Right. But there was one place where, let me just read this. If you want, you can, if you have the text, you can pull it up, but otherwise this is good because it gets to the heart of the question of how sanctions, how prohibitions work for the rat man. And also his role as uncle, literally an uncle uh, to this girl. It says another case of an elliptical solution. Once again, a warning or ascetic prohibition. He had a sweet little niece. And I think here Freud's being literal, not like the girls we were talking about earlier where he is playing the part of the uncle, but this is literally a niece. He had a sweet little niece of whom he was very fond. One day the idea came to him, if you allow yourself to engage in intercourse, something terrible will happen to Ella. And obviously something terrible being death for her. And he says, let us put back what has been taken out. And so Freud is reconstructing the actual thought process. Quote, every time you engage in intercourse, even with someone else, you must remember that in your marriage, right, with the woman that he keeps postponing marrying, that in your marriage, sexual intercourse will never result in the birth of a child because of the lady's sterility, right? As we know later on in the case, she can't reproduce, and this is probably one of the reasons why he's postponing. And then the final thought is this will cause you such distress that you will become jealous of little Ella, of your little niece, and begrudge your sister the child. The consequence of these jealous feelings must be the death of the child. Right. So that is how Freud fills in the obviously the the sexual urge, right? The urge to complete these the act of sexual intercourse, which he delays until the age of 26, even if he's already even if his sexual life is um, is active, it's never completed, right? There is that forestalling 
of the actual act. And um, Freud wants to indicate that completing the act would cause for something very terrible to happen to someone dear to him. Right. In this case, it's not it, now. Usually it's the father is going to be punished in the afterlife or the woman I want to marry will be punished if the sexual act or sexual urges are you know, followed up on. And we know that that's part of how the rat contraption gets fixated in his mind. Right. That uh, if he if he does. If he follows through with these compulsions of a sexual nature, his father in the afterlife or the woman he wants to marry will have rats shoved up their ass. Right. That's kind of how he thinks about it here. He the sexual wish comes at the cost of of a of an urge to do harm of an aggressive, vengeful urge. Right. To do harm. And so for the first time, we see the woman that he loves being substituted for his little niece. We know he has another niece too, though. We know, um, or not another niece. We know that his brother wants to marry a woman and he has this jealous rage and has this thought that he wants to kill her because now he gives the excuse that he wants to kill his brother's fiance because his brother is marrying beneath his station. See, again, it's about this kind of hierarchy, this question of money, right. the same thing that his father prohibited him from doing. He wants to prohibit his brother from marrying lower. But if we were Freud and we kept this thought going, the real reason why he wants to kill his brother's fiance is that she can have children. Ah, uh, yes, yes. You know what I mean? Like he's jealous that his brother will be able to continue the family line. If he marries the woman he wants to marry, he will not be able to successfully continue the the line, but his brother would be able to. Right. And it's fascinating that we know that his sister already has a child. So the line does go on, but in a matrilineal fashion, not in a patrilineal fashion. So now you bring in the phallus, the the role of the male lineage, et cetera, et cetera. So the father, I think the brother is actually the one he's jealous of. And not the woman he's going to marry. He's jealous that, that this guy, that, that his brother might be happy and might marry the woman he wants to. And at the same time, make his father happy. Right. Um, we don't hear that his father says to his brother, you can't marry this woman because she's yeah. at lower station. Right. You never hear about that. True. So why, why am I the rat man denied my choice, my object choice? Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, like that's part of the, the interesting compulsion sanction rhythm that he'll have this i want to i want to fuck you know i want to fuck anything that moves in but if i do something bad is going to happen and you see the the weird logic that goes on and freud's very i think he's very close to the matter when he's saying that it is rooted in this unconscious knowledge which you know, is, is paradoxical to like classical philosophy, but it's this unconscious knowledge that he'll be disseminating his semen on unfallow ground, kind of like in the, the parable, right? That Jesus tells about sowing the seed, right? Yeah. On, the, on the fallow ground, on the, the unfallow ground. He knows he'll be, he'll be, uh, he'll be fucking a, a, an empty womb, which we talked about a little bit, I think last time with the Lydians and the right, prostituting right, right. the daughters, I see you've got some notes here that we didn't get to touch on last time, but it's fascinating. We know that 
when the Ram Man comes to see Freud, he's entered the service like his father. His father was in the service and his father incurred a debt that could have been potentially devastating to his future prospects, right? He, he gambled so much that he lost so much money that he potentially could have uh, ruined his financial situation. And some friend, some savior of his comes out of nowhere, gives him uh, the money to pay this back. And we hear that whether this was disconcerting or not, his father was very open with the family and seemed to tell this story very uh, honestly and say, yeah, I lost all this money and I never got to pay it back to my friend. So now we fast forward and the rat man owes, what is it, 380? I mean, at the time, it, it's like pittance. It's a pittance to pay back. You know, it dwarfs in comparison, or it is dwarfed in comparison by what his father owed, right? It's not even a day's labor. And he owes money for these glasses that he's ordered, right? Because he's lost them. I assume serendipitously, because I think that there is there is something symptomatic in losing the glasses. But he loses yeah, yeah. the glasses. I'm yeah, just thinking ahead. about this mention of the gaze and like the scopophilic drive related That's to right. the glasses and the seeing the women. That's a good point. Or like the desire to see the women's uh, nude bodies, right? Like perhaps there's some tie there. Oh, I think that that's definitely an element that's of kind it. kind of interesting, you know, right? After he remembers his repressed memory that the first thing he did uh, at age three, the first sexual memory he has is crawling under his governess's dress. He says at age five, he can remember very strongly always wanting to see women naked. This voyeurism, this drive to sneak into the bathhouses and watch his the pretty governess uh, undress and pop the pimples on her ass, this drive to observe sexually, right? And it is connected partly to the sexual theories of children because, you know, as as young boys, we've we've kind of all all been there in some fashion of curious about the the other sex. But it seems that it's more than just a than just a passive curiosity. Right. Right. This seems to be an active yeah, yeah, yeah. need far... or an active, you can call it a perversion. I don't know, you know, I mean, use that word in scare quotes, but it's an active drive, this need, this scopophilia, this desire to see naked women, naked bodies, even one could say. And um, and so yes, losing the glasses then would be a symptom of or a, a convenient way to reduce the severity of that drive, which may have, you know, altered in the meantime between five, ages of five and what early twenties, maybe who knows, late late teens, who knows when he would have. But you see the point, right? Like maybe mid twenties, even that drive may have altered, but it probably remained cathected intensely, remain invested and probably drove him to still have that urge. So losing the glasses is one convenient way to remove a prosthesis to that drive. You know what I'm saying? Like to, to kind of inhibit yeah, it a little this bit. This sort of mitigating factor, right? Okay. Uh -huh. Interesting. As a kid, I was like sort of, of course I didn't have the proper like understanding of the mechanics of sexual intercourse, but I was very, found it repulsive perhaps in a sense because I recall always saying that I would have my wife artificially inseminated. I would not have sex with my wife. 
I would have her artificial inseminated. And again, this is before I had any kind of like conception of what actually occurred for right. you know, the sexual act, right? So I think that's kind of an interesting parallel or not parallel, but juxtaposition to the rat man and this early scope of feeling. Cause like he's, he's titillate. Right, if you'll forgive he, the pun. Right. Yeah. I remember even later on, you know, being looking at pornography, like magazines, like Playboy penthouse, et cetera. And like, there hadn't been this libidinal cathexis, cathexis yet. Right. And so there was a certain, a certain alienness to the female form or the woman's body, right? That's like, right at like at, at seven or eight for me, like I didn't have that libidinal cathexis in a, in a very like, you know, in a sort of, there's no erotic connection like that symbolic or imaginary rather connection hasn't been established yet, right? To where the woman's genitals are a, a, an object of desire, right? Like that hasn't been, that sort of imaginary capacity hasn't been really fully developed at that point, which I think is kind of an interesting contrast to the rat man's direct experience at that, at an even younger age, perhaps of right. having touched these women's genitals, etc. Yeah. And I think that, that, you know, that's, a, that, I would say that the uh, lack of desire for the, the genitals at age seven uh, of the the opposite sex. I mean that 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 feels very natural, not just in my experience too, but in uh, Freudian theory, because you know at that stage the genitals aren't haven't yet kind of sucked in all the the erotic libidinal energy and focused on and sort of overcoated the body onto the genitals. You know, the, in, at least in the Freudian stages. I do think it's fascinating though that you know at that age you have enough knowledge of what goes on in your childhood sexual theories to, to, and also their scientific advances made possible, but that have made artificial insemination possible that you are advanced enough and precocious enough to consider that an option. (laughs) Right. I mean, like at age seven, I mean, obviously at the time Freud is dealing with things that wouldn't have been a possibility for us as children to have that technological prosthetic substitute for the penis as yeah. a means of inseminating. But the fact that you are able to, you know, being like, well, I'll just use a turkey baster, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's, that to me is maybe shows, obviously it shows a precociousness. It also shows a normal feeling of repulsion from the sexual act. I think it's normal at age seven. And to have that technological possibility as a substitute, I think that that's fascinating to me. Yeah. And um, I can't say the same that I had that idea. <laughs> what is interesting too here is this. This is the very interesting reversal of this in that now the libidinal cathexis is present, right, with the female body um, or the woman's body. Yeah, w- women are cool. I like them. Yeah. So there is now there's that, but now it's the reverse. The reproductive element has less purchase with me now than it did uh-huh. when I was a kid. Then it was like, oh, I will, I'll, I'll reproduce with this assistance like the the um the, the drive to reproduce you're saying is not even a factor is that is right that- or it's been de- like it's a flip it's almost flipped right because now the 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 general the female genitals or the woman's genitals are cathected libidinally yep but the 
other side of it, the reproductive side has like that been divorced has been divorced. Right. Yeah. And now it's like, no, there's, yeah, the, the, there's a desire for the woman's body, but the desire for reproduction has like that whole relationship has flipped, which I think is, is super interesting. I mean, and it makes sense, you know, when you're a child and you're exploring sexuality and you're, you're constructing theories, uh, you know, you, you've moved past the um, <clears throat> being told that the stork delivers the babies. You've already found that out to be a lie, just like Santa Claus. Um, you know, you, you, you then, as Freud said, you, you know, you kind of see that you can't trust adults in this, in this arena and they're trying to keep something away from you. So like now you continue your theories in secret. And so you, but, but, but yet at the same time, you're still fascinated as a child and you still see the uh, social value and valorization placed on reproduction. Yes. Right. That it's good to reproduce. That's normal citizenry. As a good good citizen, you reproduce and add to the stock of humans. Yeah. Uh, That is obviously beaten into you. Right. Not necessarily directly. It's just, you absorb that. That's the symbolic, that's the symbolic order. Right. Yes, that's right. So you still say like, well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, fucking girls that's kind of gross but yeah, i'll do exactly. my duty i'll do my i'll do my <laughs> to reproduce right yes. without the grody right. parts <laughs> right and and you know um Freud brings up in the second theoretical section about um but the reverse to now the funny part is now like i'll do the just i'll do the quote unquote the dirty the disgusting act but i don't care about the the right. uh, societal benefit of the of the reproduction element of it <laughs> and, and, you know, you've been open uh, at least once on here about your desire for, for older women. Is that, does that, does that play at all a part into, I mean, are, are you even, do you even consider their fertility or is that just a kind of. It may be unconscious. I think that, you know, part of it is definitely like the pragmatics of it are an older woman is less likely to be concerned about reproduction. Yep. That's right. Yeah, she, There's yeah. less investment in that element, which is, you know, just practically speaking, you know, there's a, a lot of women that do want to reproduce, right? Like that sort of eliminates a significant, right? Right. Yeah. Their, their, their drive to, to, to have done that. So there's know. a more convenient element aspect of like, oh, we're not this with an older woman, there's less concern about reproduction. Right, the relationship can focus and uh, and be invested in other areas that don't necessarily concern right. the, again, the societally, the symbolically valorized aspect of, of well, we better get married, settle down, and have kids. That that yeah, generally yeah. is the drive that is instilled right. and made to be the focal point of adulthood, and uh, you know, in in our age. And with progress in societal values and norms in general. Yeah. I mean, evolution of the economic, uh, evolution of the means of production has sort of made it less, you know, it's less economically viable to have a family. Right. This economic environment, right. Which is. In this economy. That's, yeah, exactly. In this economy. But that's a whole, that's a very, to me, that's a super interesting way to couch libidinal economy into this discussion of the rat man. Right. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, I, I have to share my own, you know, I mean, when I was, I believe I was 19 and, you know, when I met, 
my future wife at the time, she was, she was married. She was married to a guy who had just, I guess, become honest to himself that, that he was at the very least bisexual and had found a man um, that he had started seeing at the time. And he wanted her to have, have a boyfriend to keep her happy. Right. And I don't think that, uh, you know, and one of the people he suggested was me. He'd only met me once, but he had kind of heard about me. I'm kind of a big deal. <laughs> uh, anyway, when I first met her, you know, uh, when I first met her, when she walked in at the time, I, you know, I was at my girlfriend's place. She was, uh, she was at work. I was hanging out with her roommate and her friend and they walked in. I had heard about them too, but you know, I, you know, when, when she walked in, I didn't like necessarily look at her because it's like, you know, it's another man's wife. Right. Right. I'll get to know her if, if the chance arises, you know, we're around smoking. I just remember everyone kind of being quiet. And for some reason I started talking about, you know, some obscure shit. <laughs> Started talking about like Dadaism and the history of representational <laughs> art, some bullshit, some serious bullshit. Oh, and, 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 and obviously like that's all so the, speaking of the, precociousness, right? Well, <laughs> you know, it's not that the other people there weren't intellectual right. or anything. It's just like, that's but granted you're thing. like, you're literally a wonderkind. Well, I mean, you out. know, it's, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Taylor, Taylor Wunder, Wunderkinds. Wunderkind, um, yes. Yeah. And she was the only one. I, I just looked around and, our eyes met and sort of we fell in love and uh very quickly though once we started dating and after that you know i she was honest with me that that she had cancer as a child and so due to radiation and all that stuff if she were to get pregnant we would have to abort because it would it would it would basically kill her and that was not something that i was willing to even consider what killing Ru- ruining her? the relationship <laughs> like I, I i was i was in love with her i love her uh gotcha. still and so you know i married her with the knowledge that we wouldn't be that that would not be <laughs> there's a certain foreclosure upon the yeah and of I, reproduction right it never bothered me uh in the way that it bothers the rat man because the rat man is in this position where he loves this woman right. and he has this desire to finish his educational yeah. studies he keeps postponing marrying this woman. Bef- uh, he keeps postponing finishing his education to be able to start a family with this woman, which he wants to do first before he marries her. But he knows that she can't have children. Oh, so in, okay. a, right, right, in, a, in a way that the reason why he won't finish his prospects is because then he will have a good excuse for not marrying yeah. her. But he doesn't. But, but, but this is all unconscious. Her, this is all unconscious. Yeah, this is not a conscious Right. No, Freud seems to untangle all of this from from the analysis. Yeah. To go back to the element of transference, which I think is so important yes, for, yes, for understanding Freud. You know, we see that he's he's in the service. There are two captains. One's a nice cop. One's a bad cop. The bad cop is the one that's cruel. The bad cop is the one that tells him the story of this torture device involving strapping on a pot with a rat that will crawl up your ass as a torture device. So he's got this horrified notion of this, this bad captain. And in a way it's kind of like the, the father figure being split, right? The good, the good cop, bad cop, the good captain, bad captain, the old good cop, bad cop. And, and when, yeah, exactly. And so when he gets, when he gets word of his package, he has to pay for it. He first hears 
from the good captain that he's supposed to pay back Lieutenant B, who has recently taken over the position that deals with the post with the post office. He's told by the bad captain that he has to pay back Lieutenant A, whose duties it usually was to do the post office service. He knows in his head he's supposed to pay back B. He's told by the bad guy to pay back A. And he says to the captain, I will pay back A, which becomes right after his mouth. That becomes an an injunction, a command that he feels this irresistible need to finish. Yet, at the same time, he actually knows that he doesn't owe either of them any money. He's supposed to pay back the woman at the post office who has said nice things about him, who he knows has said nice things about him, who may have a crush on him. Who knows how far it goes. And in the course of telling Freud about all of this, well, first of all, you know, you can see that you could see that in a certain way, the Lieutenant A and B and his need to involve them in the charade where he brings both of them to the post office, gives the girl the money, the, the, the girl gives money to Lieutenant A who pays Lieutenant B, and then it goes back to her. This weird little circuit he needs to try to do is all this way of mediating the object of female desire with these male counterparts in this quasi-homosexual, at the very least homosexual, triangular fashion. Because he, because going to her directly in a certain way would, with the exchange of money, as we kind of said last time, would kind of almost put her in the role of prostitute, right? You know, because what are you paying women? What are you giving money to women for if not for a sexual act? At least in his weird obsessional <laughs> mind where he already has this split between the ideal woman who can't reproduce, <laughs> who, he, who he wants to marry, who he's not supposed to marry, and then her opposite, which is the woman whom you would never marry and who also supposedly isn't supposed to reproduce, but who may be associated with the reproductive function of the prostitute, whom he supposedly hates, who he's, he's told Freud he hates. He hates all prostitutes. wonder where that came from. That came from this idealization of, of this, this woman he's not supposed to marry, who can't even be a mother to him, right? Which is kind of, I think, in his head, he's associating. Yeah. Or, or a mother for him, not to him. You, but even with Freud, you never know, right? Because when you're the ideal woman is always a step association or two away. There's like six degrees of Kevin Bacon but with <laughs> motherhood, right? There's always a substitutive associative chain there. Uh, like metonymy, right? Yes, we, exactly. There's always, you're always one substitute away from marrying your mother. And I think that, the thing that I find fascinating about the transference is when he's telling the story to Freud, instead of calling, keep instead of being proper and calling him Herr Freud, he starts calling him Captain Freud. Yeah, yeah. At least in this session. And Freud notes it down. He doesn't say a lot about it, but he kind of notes it down. You know, Freud's in this. Do you see there that there's this transference of the good and the bad captain spliced together? in a weird, well, soldered, semi-contradiction. It's like soldering together these contradictions without canceling them out. And, yeah, yeah. and that's the good, bad father, the good, bad captain, the good, bad authority figure, the good, bad analyst, right? And so Freud, that's part of the transference there, right? Trans- transferring the figure of the, the father, the split father, the split captain 
on the Freud. And I wanted to get all the, that in to tie in the fucking glasses, because what will his bifocals and his glasses do? They'll allow him to, to see the naked bodies. Well, that's true. They'll allow him to see the naked bodies, but they'll also allow him to bring these two images uh, uh, into <laughs> into clarity, right? Oh, to, bring interesting. These, to bring the the duality, this harsh split between these dualities, it'll it'll give him it'll get rid of his double vision, is kind of how I would read the glasses. And um yeah, and that's, so interesting. that's that's interesting so, in the case of like the uh, double slit experiment too with light, right? Right. The young you talk about the young young slit. Um, no, the double the dual slit experiment. So basically, like the experiment that shows that light travels as a wave and a particle. Right. Yeah. It's it's usually associated with Jung. Um, not not Jung, the psychoanalyst, but this I think this physicist um, spelled like your. Uh, like your Y-U-N-G? Yeah. Um, or it may be Y-O-U-N-G. I'm probably now just doing a, <laughs> doing a slip. You're uh, confabulating, right? Yes, I'm confabulating. I'm <laughs> distorting and... Um, but yes, uh, that that's that's good, right? The two slits so that the wave can be broken down into a... to a, to a photon. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very much like that. Like, I think there's something interesting in this to go really back to the relations with the situation with the Florens and the molestation of his quote unquote nieces, right? Yeah. Like, I think there's an interesting tie here to, and really even in his, in his reaction to the prostitute as well. Really interesting nugget here that's pulling in so many different directions because of one element that is implied within the relation the relations with the prostitute is the foreclosure of reproduction is involved right and yep. so that foreclosure of reproduction with this lady right that's part of this whole revulsion is you know i think maybe that's where this obsessional neurosis is is involving itself too in that sense of being repulsed by the prostitute because of the lack of reproduction, which is in sort of violation of the symbolic order, right? I think there's another that is repulsive uh, to him. Yeah. I think there's another. I think carrying you further, piggybacking off what you said, I think too that unlike the Lydians, instead of it being prostituting your daughters to and 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 therefore bereftening them, taking away their reproductive powers, the fear of the prostitute, which we talked about a little bit last time was like, they are associated with carrying syphilis, right? Which yes, is yes, also yes. conducted by the penis and the penis and the rat symbolically associated. We won't go over all that again. Right. Um, dear listener, if you like, you can listen to the end of our last episode, but the fear I think, and the hatred he has for the prostitute is precisely that they can get pregnant at least on average, right? More so than his idealized love. They can get pregnant. And if we look at um, the really interesting footnote Freud has, where he says, he quotes Lichtenberg, whom I don't know, but he quotes him saying, the astronomer knows if there is a man in the moon with about as much certainty as he knows who his father was, 
but not with so much certainty as he knows who his mother was. So, and then Freud goes in a little bit more about how paternity is not something we can ever be 100% sure about, right? So if he were to satisfy his sexual impulses with prostitutes, you could obviously go down this fear of syphilis and that obsessive compulsive shit, which is makes sense. But he's also afraid that if they become pregnant, he would potentially be fathering all these little rat men, you know, <laughs> across the across Vienna without ever knowing for sure whether he had uh, not just successfully completed the sexual act, but completed the desired consequences thereof reproduction right he um or of course the fear that that the prostitute would be like oh the baby's yours you know and some mari jerry springer you know uh, <laughs> moment right so you I think are that the that, father yes exactly i think that there's a fear there associated with prostitutes with this fear of the paternal function being hazy at best right of being um you know, never, and this this would bring up the obsessional doubt stuff, right? Because, you know, I think that with any with any love, with any obsessional man, with with his lover, let's say that his ideal love can reproduce, and he he's off to war, and you know, yada yada. Who knows what what she's doing behind his back? Just the obsessive jealousy that might come from. She's pregnant and it's like, well, what's the time frame? Yada, yada. All that shit comes into play where he would, he wouldn't be able to deal with it. If you think about his manners of deflection and distortion and time compression and time dilation, like it's a whole slew of mechanisms whereby paternity would become this exaggerated obsessional fixation where he would have to know. And at that time they didn't have paternity tests, right? Right. They would, oh, what would you best rely on, but be like the imaginary identifications, right? You'd be like, oh, he's got my nose or he's got <laughs> my face, right? He's got my rat face, you know, like, <laughs> shit like that. Right. You know, he's got, he's got whiskers, you know, I, I don't know, I mean, but, it, but it would drive him, it would drive him crazy. Yeah. I think. Right. I, I honestly do think that. Yeah. I think you're onto something there. And I think that's partly why he can never, why that's why he doesn't he always postpones he, his betrothal right he postpones his betrothal he doesn't rape the girls that he takes out he masturbates. he doesn't penetrate them with his penis he penetrates them with his digits right he, he he'd rather manipulate them and then there's this whole dialectic of female feminine jouissance and male jouissance right he's getting the off, transgression off, yeah the transgression yeah, he's mm -hmm. the unconscious jouissance the satisfaction of the drive yep extends beyond the conscious concept of satisfaction. Right. And I think you're exactly right. And there is a repression or at least some kind of suppression, some kind of maybe subsidiary enjoyment of suppressing the phallic jouissance, right. Of, of kind of choosing not to fulfill the deed is a way of punishing the, the penis, which symbolically stands for the rat. Right. It's this way of, to a certain extent, Ratman's like, well, the penis is what's dirty. My hands are clean. Right. Yeah. He's, right. 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 Oh, interesting. You know, so there's something there's something there obsessional about his about his penis, which if Freud would have been able to have 
even that yeah. with the, the money too, I think like that's another whole libidinal element to this or libid, tied to libidinal economy is the dirty, the dirty money, the dirty yes. exchange, yeah. the debt, how that, you know, one thing we didn't discuss, we mentioned it partially in the first discussion was this footnote that Freud includes about the Pied Piper of Hamlin mm-hmm. and how he lures the rats outside of the city and then whenever the town elders decide to stiff the Pied Piper is when he absconds the children. The, what we left out of that whole thing that is super, super important to me, I think, on second reading is the notion of the unpaid debt. That's yes. the real – that really is like the lodestone for this whole metaphor right. tied to the Pied Piper because you have – one thing is the association of children to rats present there, obviously, in the story, right? Because you have the children being led away, the rats being led away, the rat man's association of children with rats. But then the debt element is the big glaring part that we kind of left out that goes back to this whole this whole narrative about the debt rat man is obsessed with and like paying back this debt to and creating this whole convoluted process to repay the debt that never really gets repaid, does it? No. Oh, well, okay. So the father's debt never gets repaid. Right. Um, so the, yeah, there's that the, too. The, in the story, as you were saying, the town never repays the debt and they forfeit their children for it. And it's with the context and of- And that, that element too of reproduction as well, right? Yep. It's yep. really important. Because it's only when the story of the Hamlin story comes out and Freud puts that together- that the rat man gives one piece of information that he's held back, which is that the woman has had her ovaries removed. And he doesn't tell Freud that until this instant, until the very late in the, in the, in the therapy and Freud's able to say, ah, I see now I see where all this indecisiveness is coming from. Now I see that it's all about this fear of on the one hand, wanting to love as he chooses on the other hand, failing his father for choosing a love that that he prohibits both for station for financial stability and for reproductive possibility so that ties the case together for freud and it's it's at the end of the year when freud's able to tie all this together and that that he says that the therapy is that he's cured he's cured the rat man and it's after He's cured the rabbit after that year, however many months it would have taken, that he finally goes to the post office. No, that he finally sends. He doesn't have the balls to go and pay the girl. He doesn't go to the post office and give an apology face to face and say, I'm sorry, I've owed you this money. He just sends a check. He sends, he probably sends the florins after he's steamed them perfectly, (laughs) you know, sends crisp ironed notes to the post office to pay off his debt. Right. But he can't he can't pay it off until he's cured. He doesn't do it until he's cured. So, yes, it all hinges around this notion of debt. You're right. It all hinges around this. Um, the lines of flight for libidinal economics are are many like you can jump off yeah. from that spot. There's so much I think that's super rich to jump off from. I agree with that. You know, there's this whole equation that Freud makes not only at the end of this case history, but in um, uh, the essay is called Character and Anal Erotism, 
where money and shit are equated, right? Um, Freud remarks about the rat man's childhood coprophilia, his, his sort of fascination with, with feces, which he says is fairly common in, you know, children from ages three to five. He remarks that the rat man has this heightened sense of smell. And then we hear that the rat man for a long time had worms as a child. And we know that, I assume that he just means, um, I don't know whether he means round worms or tapeworms, but generally when humans have worms, your butthole gets irritated. Yeah, I think it's right? round worms. So yeah, round worms, there you go. So you get, we can imagine that the worms are crawling in and out of, sorry, listener, but it's <laughs> important for understanding the the fear of the rats crawling in and out of the of the rectum. Right. I mean, the, the round worms would crawl in and out of the, the anal area uh, orifice and cause that to be irritated and itchy and... And so you would have already, you know, what would be the, the easiest way to deal with that drive that with that sort of endogenous yet ex, exogenous, you know, Millar would say extimate, right? Lacan would say is this extimate drive of this internal external irritation to the asshole, but, but scratching, right? Scratching your ass. Like the rat scratching. Like the rat, the exactly. Like the rat scratching. So burrow so itself within the that anus. little that little detail of the worms, which Freud says like, well, the worm is the penis and the penis is syphilitic, blah, blah, blah. But I think it's much more associated with that, with that child, with, with the way a child or any human, maybe if they had a mild case of worms would deal with, would be scratching their ass, right? They're scratching <laughs> their butthole. So yeah, I mean, all that's tied together too. Yeah. Be sure to, be sure to watch, wash, wash your, wash your anus and your pee pee and your legs. <laughs> White people, wash your legs. Yes. Uh, I never understood that, but hey, I mean, it's just, I mean, unless you're in a war zone and you, you get cold water and you're doing like a, what, what's it called? A, you're doing like a hobo shower where you're just, you know, at a faucet. Whores bath, they, I believe. A what? They, whores bath is a like. A whores what? bath? I haven't heard that, but that's funny. A whores bath is armpits. Armpits. Believe, and, armpits, crotch, ass. There you go. Okay. Or like armpits, genitals, ass. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that a, a proper shower should be should cover most of your body, besides maybe your ears, nose, and mouth and eyes. You don't have to do those holes, but uh, the other ones. You know, it's interesting that with this notion of, uh, of of the rat man's heightened sense of smell, that rat man apparently either I don't know if this is a brag or what, but he said that he could he he was familiar with people based on their smell. And oh, I think it's good. I, think I didn't it's, catch this. Yeah, this was at the very end. What I think is interesting that Freud does mention while you look for the passage is I recall definitely at the end he references the transition from like a quadrupedal locomotion for the yeah. Homo sapien, for the human. This transition to bipedalism is the one thing that's a big thing that's lost, and especially particularly in the context of sexuality in the animal world is how big of a role that smell plays right with sex in the animal world and how the transition to standing upright really diminishes that ability that the odor like the nasal passages to the acuteness of the odor of the detection of odor and its relation to sexuality and how this perhaps is an explanation for a lot of the neuroses developed through sexuality that human beings experience yep. is because of this this diminished 
sensory apparatus, which kind of makes sense in thinking about how these things play. I've definitely heard of research delving into how, you know, I think predominantly it would be the sweat glands within the the armpits, right? Right. There being yeah, this yes. whole pheromonal element to sexual attraction, et cetera, in humans. Yeah. And, and as you said, with the horse bath, you know, uh, your, your genitals, and your anus are also going to be something that, you know, so when you're on all fours, you're going to be closer, your face, your nose, your, your olfactory organs can be closer to the, the genitals and, and the anus as well. So, yeah. But also I mean, just practically, it's like the, if the, the shifting of the nostril to a, da- a horizontal or no, a vertical axis versus a horizontal on the bipedal animal. That's right. right? Yeah, that's a good to point out too. The way that the, I mean, just pract- pragmatically, the way that odors can flow. Yeah, right. Even just from a, even at that level, right? There's going to be a decrease in the acuteness of the ability to detect odor just just in that shift. In civilization, it's discontents. Freud will say something similar, where by standing up on two legs, man gets his face out of the shit, right? And here he's saying. There is an organic repression of smell. of the animal, right? Or like, yeah, or just the animal itself. I think the more primitive elements, the lim- I don't know, the limbic. At least, at least insofar as the nose is an is an organ that would have been more dominant, right? Yes, yeah, right. Versus I mean, eyes, I think really like that's maybe the oh yeah biggest difference, right, with the human. So like on the contrary to the sense of smell, the way that the eyes are set is different right because you're th- i'm thinking about you know a dog even rats i mean really the rat right okay so yeah, that's a, that's, right. that's a that's a mammal and you know we all human beings having developed you know evolutionarily from small rodents effectively right some type of a small rodent that survived the smallest land mammal a little like shrew type to, right? right or even the even before mammals right this yeah you know, we know that lizards, for example, have a very acute sense of smell, right? They right, but their ocular smell. sense, right, it's different because they don't have the sort of the same field of vision, right? Mm-hmm. Because the eyes are on typically on opposite sides of, right. of the snout. So there's a different whole sense of field of view, yeah. field of view, depth perception, et cetera. That's right. That, the ability right. To, to see colors, right? I think the, yeah, the eyes, the ocular the scope of philic drive becomes far more important in terms of human sexuality than animal. There's a different thing going on in terms of attraction that's more ocular focused than olfactory, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it, Freud says that the that in our evolution, we have this organic repression of the pleasure and smell. And I think that Deleuze and Guattari say like in A Thousand Plateaus, if they cared to when they were talking about evolution and re-territorialization and deterritorialization, we could say that the, the eyes vision becomes deterritorialized when we yes. stand upright while right. the smell becomes re-territorialized and becomes deprioritized. Yeah. Yeah. Even That's if good. at the same time it's linked to the most intense memories. So there is a trade-off too in that. Here, what's interesting, I'm glad you brought up dogs and rats because Freud will end his case history by saying, um, for the sake of a single observation, I should like to return to the subject of the drives and obsessive compulsive neurosis. Our patient also turned out to have a nose and on his admission recognized people in his childhood according to their smell like a dog. Even now, 
olfactory perceptions were more significant to him than they are to other people. And this is where the footnote gets into saying that the rat man also as a child had kind of coprophilic, had, had, a, had a kind of fecal fetish. And it's fascinating, again, that this gives another dimension to losing the glasses. He loses the glasses and yet maybe he's during this whole time waiting to get the glasses back from Vienna, maybe that's part of the onset of the, um, of some of the complex too, because he has to rely more on his nose. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a little bit of a stretch, but that helps <laughs> us so becoming good. rat, the becoming rat that he is experiencing and that he hears and fixates on from this horror story, this torture device, losing the glasses. At the time he hears the story, he probably doesn't have his glasses. Maybe he's, his vision is literally blurry. Who knows his, uh, the acuity of his, of his vision. So he has right. to rely on his nose and <laughs> his nose is not necessarily, you know, it's come back. It, it's, it's brought back, it's brought him back to his childhood. This nostalgia of, of this reliance on the nose to, to distinguish people and the intensities that those memories would flood back in, like biting into a Madeline, you know, smelling, yeah. smelling some shit, you know, <laughs> he's got this whole influence. Oh, that's good. I love and that. This, and this return, it's return of the repressed, right? That's what Freud would say. Yeah. But it's coming through the, the olfactory drive. And that makes, and that really does feel like it accords well with the character traits of anal erotism of, of obsessive compulsives with this drive for cleanliness and orderliness um, that, that it comes to in the in mature life. Definitely one thing I for sure want to get into before we wrap up is this discussion of transgressive jouissance which is it's part of it right the other element of it is i think this discussion of how thinking becomes libidinal or there's like a libidinal release of carrying out a certain line of thought and those two things and how they apply to the rat man because for one thing right there's in thinking of this in the sense of jouissance is the satisfaction of a drive not a need so this unconscious or this whatever drive I, and i'm not sure how to line that up with drive but this obsessional fantasy of having the torture done to the father or the betrothed or sexual object for the rat man, right? Like there's a certain satisfaction in these, in the fantasy, correct? Right. Yes. Which also goes to this notion of the ability to sexually charge the thought, the thinking process and the arrival at a certain at the completion of a certain line of thought having a a libidinal expression or a libidinal being able to satisfaction arrive at satisfaction through the completion of the thought itself yes, yes. and the yeah, libidinal libidinal investment in language right is a good i think segue into lacan's work or really lacan but also you know, Leotard, Deleuze and Guattari as well, anti-Oedipus. And, and Freud too. Yeah. I certainly, mean, certainly. I mean, I, I honestly think that's a great setup. I would say that I'll say a little bit about transgression because, you know, 
Jacqueline Miller tries to say that there are, you know, these six different approaches to jouissance in Lacan, you know, the first phase is imaginary, blah, blah, blah. The third phase around seminar 11 becomes more about transgression, although Lacan doesn't stop there, but he, he sometimes is, is known for that because that's one of the first, I think that's the first seminar translated in English. And so about transgression, I would just say briefly that, you know, when, when Zizek's reading Lacan and he, humorously derives this formula, enjoy your symptom. Um, I think that there's definitely some truth to that, even if it's tongue in cheek, because here, and you set it up so brilliantly, this is where it goes into this, this, this oscillation of doubt, this, this impossibility of acting the libidinal current shift from external activity, changing the external world through action to these hyper cathected, this hyperactivity uh, in a different sense of internal, internal thought processes, right? Wherein all of the indecisiveness, all of the, the, conf- the conflicts that are created in these compulsions to propose to decide to do an act and then at the same moment or in the same counter-effectual beat uh, and rhythm to negate that and to counteract that, uh, there is this kind of libidinal vortex that is shaped around his his thinking processes and his and his obsessional processes and his his need in a way or his drive to to intercalate to integrate all of these different elements of doubt, like for example, not having a distaste for clocks because they set down a specific certainty of what time it is. And so weaving in two temporal shifts, all of that. And as we talked right before the show, as he's getting closer to unraveling the complex with Freud, we see his resistances heighten. We see his, his sort of hatred for, um, for Freud and the other the oscillation between love and hate becomes more and more varied. So we see coming to the fore his his hatred of his father and, uh, you know, his his wish that uh, his father, he could have, he would have killed his father to have sexual intercourse, yes, et cetera. Yes, yes. All this stuff. We see um, that in the transgression of the father's, like his prohibition Edith, against his yeah, loved yeah, yeah. objects, right. blah, blah, blah. All of this seems like a way of getting off except uh, interesting getting the, off in, the prohibition of the prohibition of incest too mm. oh that's an interesting well little yeah. wrinkle right in a certain way when the father says your first true loved object you know it's obviously this is past the mother stage or the, right. the stage with the mother but your first love object the father sees the son, the rat man doing what he wanted to do as a young man, he wanted to marry beneath his station, the woman he loved. And he was talked out of it by his parents. So his father is too carrying down this tradition of prohibiting the son to have the loved object. It was done on him first and he's carrying it down. And who knows the ringing through the years of history, how many generations had been, may have had love in some form, but was that was disregarded and prohibited. 
I mean, Nietzsche himself talks about modern love as as soon as love more and more is taken away from the hands of the family and, and arranged marriages and is built on this, or as soon as marriage is taken away from the family and arrangements amongst families and is centered more and more on this ideal of love, of falling in love, then marriage itself radically changes. So there's something going on here too, where we see that perhaps the rat man's father is one of the first generations to have more freedom and love choices. And yet at the same time, no, you will not marry this girl. You will marry, you will marry up. Same with the rat man. And there's something interesting about it too, because traditionally, even though that's not stated here, traditionally the woman is the one who is expected to marry above her station, right? right. She's supposed to marry a, a rich man, so to speak. And what we see the father and the rat man both doing, well, they are in a certain sense by their families treated like, like women, treating it like, like, the, like a feminine subject by saying you're going to marry a sugar mama. So there's something um, that goes counter to the traditional stereotypes of the masculine and the feminine. The masculine is supposed to go out and get the bacon and bring on the bacon and the woman's supposed to be, you know, happy to, happy to be there, right? But it's, it's the opposite here for both of them. So, so his whole sexual fantasies and his love objects get kind of turned into this competition, right? Of this compulsion and repulsion, this, this oscillatory movement that coalesces in his complexes, his obsessional complexes, his indecisiveness, his need of, his sort of need for harvesting doubt. And I think that there's something we could say that he, he gets off on this. I think that if we take Zizek literally, enjoy your symptom, there is a sense in which, yeah, he's getting jouissance out of these, out of this stasis, if you will. It's this hyperstasis though, right? He's violently vibrating in place, but he's, he's lost. Between love and hate. Mm-hmm. Between love and hate, between yes and no, between active and passive, between violating, between piercing the the hymen, but prohibiting the phallus from doing so. There are all these different means and where he he's substituting, he's reaching for the goal and with one hand and substituting it at the last minute, right? There is a sleight of hand, you know, not to, again, not the pun being going on. There is this, Freud talks about it a lot of times in terms of compromise formations, right? We could kind of see here that the compromise formations that the rat man's drives undergo, they turn so quickly on their head and they, and they move so fast and they, they fight back against one another so quickly that it is hard for him to make any progress. And that's why I think that he has to come to Freud because he, he's exhausted. He's, it's like he's cummed all out, right? He's totally incapacitated and exhausted. The regence is, is overwhelming, you know, of his, his symptoms and his complex and, um, he honestly can't move forward in life without, you know, without, without breaking, without working through the obsessions. But you're right to say that it is, it has become intellectual more so than not for him. The fantasies have become literally intellectual masturbation. Yeah. The thought uh, process the, itself becomes sexualized and reaching the conclusion to a line of thought experience right. as sexual satisfaction, I, aka coming 
AKA the end of also end of libidinal economy <laughs> where, yep. where Leo yeah. Tard says, you know, invokes the, what is it? The Molly. I forget the Joyce reference specifically, but right. I think it's Molly. Yeah. Right. Molly, something or other that comes at the end of the novel. What is it? Ulysses, mm-hmm. but also Leo Tard himself coming apparently at the end of right. libidinal economy as well. Which is yes, right, yes, like yes, that's yes. The, at the end of the thought process. <laughs> yeah, he can finally he can finally let go. Yeah, he can finally uh, stop negating. Stop, right, stop because some... who who was it that held the cum? Who was it that held the cum? It was the that was part of Taoist erotics, correct? Yeah, the Taoist. Right, the Taoist erotics. The, the male... the they would hold off. They would put the thumb over the the opening of the urethra, right? Or that not that it's on the underside of the member. Right, gotcha. you can't keep the the cum from coming out of the the the, the toothpaste um, from coming out <laughs> of the uh, the the bottle, but yeah. So you have to you have to kind of restrict the um, the the gland, so to speak. Right, the get to put pressure on it and and restrict that opening, choke it off, and it's in thrusts of nine and nine, right? And then you take that break, you know, disrupting and, the flows of desire. Yeah, so there's a rhythm to it, and I think that I think that that's that's what we can see in Ratman that his his obsessions and his sanctions, his compulsions and his his uh, his reprimands are going in this rhythm, and they're sort of tensing to a certain to a certain beat to a certain rhythm, and yet because they're equally strong, one can never get the upper hand, right? <laughs> um, you know, the one hand is. Is jacking off while the other is is pulling pulling away. So it is this deadlock of active and passive, and it's concretized in all of these different symbolic. I mean, if we go go Lacanian, it is for Freud. He he's saying all of these can be traced back to a cluster of signifying chains, right? yeah. a series of signifying chains. Freud is very Lacanian here, or you could you know if you want to be anachronistic. Um, <laughs> One of which I find very fascinating. One of the things he says about the rat man who has kind of not necessarily like, kind of like Schreber, not really been religious, but he seems to have found religion again in his obsessive compulsive days, even if he had some upbringing more so than Schreber. But he becomes religious and in trying to deal with his compulsions, which express a wish. And in that wish, in in the drive towards fulfilling that wish, there is a counter wish which is part of a not fully negating, but there's something that he wants to repress in that wish, which is the father's death or breaking it off with this woman who can't have children, right? So you have you have the wish and the counter wish. And so what does he do? He goes and he tries to pray. In his prayers, he seems to fail at praying without, he, he, he starts to say these prayers, these long prayers, and whenever he's about to finish and say, and, and to break off, there's a no or a not, right? That, that gets put in. So he's like, prays like, let nothing bad, or, or so what is it? Let God protect her. And he's thinking of his woman. And then he just throws in a knot, you know, like a psych, and he has to start all over. And so what does he do? He starts to truncate his prayers. Freud says this is a common device with obsessionals. They'll just speak it out as quickly as possible. And so in doing so, he abbreviates each word that he wants to say and adds amen to it. And what 
what Freud finds is that the anagram of his prayer is the name of his lady, right? So right there, there's a signifying complex that the rat couldn't, couldn't see. And the other thing he says is that the anagram with the word amen, I'm trying to remember the footnote, but he says that it's, that it is basically the word semen. Do you remember this? No, not at all. Oh man, this is wild. Uh, I think this is footnote. My, my PDF isn't searchable either, so I can't. <laughs> well, I think that basically what happens is the truncated prayer, each ending with the word amen, comes out to stand for the word semen. And it's like off by one letter and Freud notes it. Just dear reader, dear listener, take take my word for it. I didn't just make that up. That's not my, that wouldn't be something I would necessarily just, just make up. If I do find it when we're looking, I will, I will come, oh, <laughs> I will literally come back to it. <laughs> exactly. The completion of a line of thought is a, its own orgasmic experience. I'm sorry, did you say completion? <laughs> I did. Yeah, I, sure did. I also like when he's bringing in doubt, he brings in Hamlet, Freud brings in Hamlet to Ophelia, and in the German, he does quote the English, where it's doubt thou the stars are fire, doubt that the sun doth move, doubt truth to be a liar, but never doubt that I love that half rhyme, love and prove or move. But if you remember in Hamlet, Hamlet's trying to create doubt in everyone that he's gone mad. He's trying to, he's trying to play at being mad, which is right. something that Freud and Lacan say you can't do. You can't play at being mad and trick yourself or whatever you have, you know, um, but he's trying to trick everyone and he's tricking Ophelia so well that he has to say shit like this to her. And it's obviously in the end, it doesn't work, right? She kills herself because he's so good at, playing it being this hysterical, breathing, bereft son, this um, mourning son. Um, so that I thought was a little bit, that's where I'm kind of thinking about Freud being like, ah, is that really the best? Is that really, like, if you consider the the narrative of Hamlet, is that really the best thing to be quoting, right? Yeah, I was just thinking of the Oedipal yeah. implications of, because what what draws this whole reaction from Hamlet is her fidelity to her father's wishes in terms of their relationship. Yes. Right. To Polonius, right? Correct. Polonius? Yeah. Polonius yeah. is the father, right? Yes. And he's, is he trying to keep her away or? Um... Yeah. I think he's trying to protect her from the whims of, I believe if I memory serves correctly, that Polonius is saying, you know, this Hamlet is a, you know, he's, He's royalty, he's this monarchy figure, so his your station places you in the in a very vulnerable position. Right. In this respect, because you are not a noble, you're not noble. So to be cautious with your and perhaps to cool your relations with with Hamlet, I think is the overarching Right. And so she starts And would she obey? She does obey. Right. Right. She starts to pull away from from Hamlet and then Hamlet Which he maybe, finds is a betrayal. Like he right. very he reacts very angrily uh, towards right. this. 
I mean, part part of the part of the weird logic in Hamlet is that unlike what Freud and Lacan say, this playing at being mad seems to eventually drive Hamlet mad. But there because, is method. There is method in his madness. Polonius no, yeah, there, there says is. Too, right? Like there, I mean, there is. It's just it, it almost works too well, right? Um, yeah. He says, while attempting to pray the words, may God protect her, a hostile knot suddenly erupts from the unconscious, and he guesses correctly that this constitutes the beginning of a curse. So this, so part of part of what Freud finds in the obsessional, in Ratman at least, is this, this gets back to what we said about the sexualization of the thoughts, where is this purported omnipotence of the thoughts that it's merely by having the thought Ratman believes there is a necessary consequence that will come about. What's interesting here is to go back to the very beginning of the case, one of the things we didn't really talk about was how the Ratman at an early age felt that his parents were, could hear his thoughts. Yes, that's right. That's a good point. And so there's this sort of, and I mean, this, to me, this whole line of thinking and that's why I didn't quite bring it in quite connect so much but to draw on like this whole metaphor of like panopticon I think it's sort of interesting in that sense that right the parents are and this whole Oedipal relation as far as you know surveillance right yes reading the the thoughts of the subject I think is very interesting. Um, like I said, just from a metaphorical standpoint, if you're like taking this whole rat, like if you want to go very abstract with the rat man and the parents being, you know, a stand in for the state and their mm-hmm. ability to hear the thoughts and the desires of the internal world of the subject, the rat man, right. That creates this whole neurotical, like that's a, an important component of the neuroses for him. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a. I think that it's important. I'm glad that you brought that up because this this belief or superstition in the omnipotence of his thoughts does stem back to childhood. Does stem back to the this quasi telepathic uh, ability of his parents, or it's either his parents are so attuned to him, or that his thoughts. I think probably it's more his thoughts are so loud that they externalize themselves for others to hear, at least for those closest to him. And that is very reminiscent of, of something like Schreber. It's a type of paranoic symptom that is super important. And Freud doesn't just state it for completeness. I think that it is very important to consider. And uh, he does bring up a relationship to... Um, he talks about going to get hydrotherapy to get these kind of like bath massages or whatever. And one of the things that he seems to indicate to Freud that he uses this as an excuse, or at least after the first visit, he kind of falls for a girl there or starts to have a liking for her. And the next time he comes, uh, next time he comes back to the, to the bathhouse, <laughs> he wants the same room because he wants to get the same girl and an old man's there. And he's and he says, let's hope he drops dead. (laughs) And then we hear like, which goes to that whole the obsessional neuroses of the punishment being administered to the wife and the father, right? Yep, direct punishment. And he hears two weeks later that the guy, the old man, has a stroke, and he feels like, oh shit, 
maybe maybe <laughs> I should be careful with my thoughts with my yeah, words. I've hyperstitioned this man's death. Yeah, he, exactly. <laughs> he has this, and there's the other case of where there's this spinster lady, is how it's translated here. So there's this this other old lady uh, or this other woman who supposedly is it's interesting her. too. Like the older man is an obstacle to his sexual satisfaction too, which is like his like father. The desire, yeah, exactly. That's kind yeah. of the interesting like. Substitution, in. right? Like that's, that's the substitution right. for Freud. And there's a substitution for the for the lady where there's a Spencer lady who wants his love and like, why can't you love me? And he kind of gives her the cold shoulder and she kills herself later. And he has these deep feelings of guilt that if he would have just obviously lied, if he would have just said the words, I love you, or shown somehow that he did love her, even mm-hmm. when he didn't, he could have saved this woman's life. Now, that kind of, that's again, a kind of wishful thinking, right? Where we, we, we know it's kind of a, you're violating a stoic precept, right? Where it's, you're not, the stoics always wanted us to understand what is within our power and what is not, and to respect that difference. And obviously here he, is mixing the two where it's obviously not up to him whether or not she commits suicide. And it's not really even ethically incumbent upon him to lie to this woman. But after the fact, and knowing very well that that he could have said these magic words, I love you, and potentially extended this woman's life, he has this feeling that it's his fault. So again, he's mixing the active and the passive in a way that that is very indicative of what he will do throughout in all of these different, not just in his thoughts too, right? In his actions, right? With, with, like, with like the girls that he plays uncle to. But yes, he has an overestimation of the powers of his thinking. And it is a kind of megalomania, but I do think you're really, really good at pointing out that yes, he has this paranoid ideation at a very young age that his parents can hear his thoughts. And I think that part of that is linked to that first injunction of the, the governess at age three, when he, when he crawls under her dress, you know, she says to him, you can't tell anybody. And so what does he do? Right. What does he do? He puts in place monitoring. He starts to put into place a kind of sensor and a monitoring of his thoughts and like of a, this, this shall not pass. This cannot happen. And so that notion that the parents can read his thoughts, knowing he's a very perverted little boy, right? Wanting to see his caretakers naked and all this stuff, having this severe uh, sexual drive ignited at a precocious age. Yeah, he's worried that the, the law is gonna come down on him and fucking take his, uh, take his sexual drives away, whether it be the phallus itself, which we know he doesn't really care about because it seems castration is a little bit different for him. You know, um, losing the glasses is more probably the castration than losing his, the penis that he seems not to want to uh, take out for, for a drive, right? So, so yeah, I mean, that's, that seems like one of those early symptoms, childhood symptoms that, that, gets, uh, that gets thrown in later. Oh, I did find, I did find that thing about semen. <laughs> He says, on another occasion, he told me of his special magic word. I thought this was interesting. 
constructed as a means of protection against all temptation by taking the initial letters of all the most powerfully restorative prayers and rounding them off with the word amen. So I can think of like, now I lay me down to sleep, right? You could just put amen in every word. Um, Suck me off. Something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he says, I cannot give the word itself here for reasons that will immediately become apparent. For when I learned what the word was, I cannot help noticing that it was in fact the name of the lady he admired in anagrammatic form. The name contained an <laughs> S that he placed at the end immediately before the word amen. And so the word is salmon and it's a semen. <laughs> He had thus, let us say, brought together his mistress and his semen, i.e. masturbated over a fantasy of her. He himself, however, had not noticed this glaringly obvious connection. <laughs> the repressed material had duped his defenses. A good example, incidentally, of the dictum that whatever one tries to fend the off. Dictum. The dictum, mm -hmm. yeah. That whatever one tries to fend off will always eventually infiltrate whatever is being used to fend it off. That's a left and the right hand thing. Dictum too. damn near killed him. Yeah, dictum. <laughs> Rectum in the rectum with the, <laughs> with the rat, with the ratata. Spielrotten. The Spielrata, yes. The rat game. Any, uh, any conclusions or... Uh... The layers at which a lot of these metaphors connect is just so good. Yeah. For instance, the Pied Piper connection that Freud draws in the footnote... Yes. I mean, even like I said, the first first time, first iteration of going through it, I didn't quite even connect on the debt side of it. Yes. Which right. really makes it such a like little crystallized. It really captures so much of this whole neurosis with the rat man. That might have been my favorite part, perhaps. That and I think the the sort of the element of how I guess this intellectualization becomes um, libidinally connected and their arrival at a completion of a line of thought being, I guess, metaphorical or like a, the orgasm in a sense. Yeah, yeah, substitute, an right. orgasm substitute. You're right. That kind of stuff. And then also the florins, the money, the exchange, that element of, of it too, like the the fear of the dirty money and having to yes, yes. obsessively iron it. Yeah, I mean, and the the sort of abhorrence of the of the sex work of the prostitute too like there's so much it's just directly wrapped, connected De directly yeah. connected yeah there's so much wrapped up in in terms of libidinal economy there with with that stuff that i think is just really fascinating i'd be it'd be like an interesting contribution to like a whole a greater work maybe like a paper or a, a longer even like a book length exploration of these libidinal yeah. I'm trying to remember there was a there was a TV series or a movie recently where there was a young there was a young child with big ambitions to make it in business and he's boss baby? <laughs> no, but he's like he's like cleaning his quarters. I was just thinking about the fact that Freud mentions that they didn't use silver coinage at this time in Vienna. Right, so I'm, I'm just thinking of Ratman having coins instead of uh, instead of the, the paper money, what he would have done, and it would have been very similar to this, like he would have obsessively counted and like sterilized the coins in some sort of hot water or- Boil them, yeah. Boil, yeah, them boil them in water or something. or something, who knows? He would have done something similar to that. Right. I'll probably remember later, it's probably some kind of repressed memory. But, um, <laughs> of your own, yeah. I do think that 
that would be the last thing I would end on is this, this misophobia. And I don't mean to pun on mice and rat, mm-hmm. but the misophobia, right? The fear of dirt germs. And at the same time, this identification with the rat, this fear of the rat, yet this love of the rat at the same time this fear and hate this love yeah yeah which yeah of course and that corresponds to the love hate dichotomy between father and rat man and rat man and his betrothed or whatever right like that dynamic yeah so that's that's part of because he oscillates between those two pole those two extremes right which gets into the whole bisexuality thing that yeah posits as well yeah, I guess into the bisexuality of, of both. Um, of which, okay, do I desire mommy now or do mm-hmm. I desire dad or daddy or whatever the case is? Right, like, yeah, it's, it's it, you know, am I, do I, father, do I follow my father's footsteps? You know, do I go against my father's wishes? And how, how can I do both at the same time? Which seems impossible, right? That he does seem to be this double bind where I want, you know, uh, I want mommy, but I can't have mommy. I want to be daddy, but I can't be daddy and still have mommy, right? It's this, you know, if you reduce it to those terms, it becomes very simple and algebraic, but it, it is a little bit more complex. And, and the, the flesh of it, the flesh of the narrative, as we've kind of pointed out, which, which I, you know, which is, it's concentrated in all these different signifying complexes. And I think that what Freud does is, with the narrative, sometimes he holds back some of these, the way he tells the story and unfolds it sometimes mirrors how he hears it and sometimes uh, prepares us in different ways. So we do get a little bit of a different rhythm than he heard it. But I do think that he, he is this master storyteller where like the stuff about Hamlin and, and the Pied Piper, he kind of hits us with that and immediately goes upon the rat being the penis and the worm all within like, there's sometimes where the narrative elements are accelerated in Freud. Mm-hmm. And you wish that you would have time to to spend time to unpack it, but he's concentrating it and just bam, bam, bam. I mean, he's he's hitting you with all these details right at the end, and it is like this climax, you know, <laughs> right. figuratively speaking. It is this like he accelerates those these little symbolic components, and um, yes, 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 right? Yeah, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> that's that's the thing, and. I guess the last thing I would say, we will see a little bit of a difference with the Wolfman case because with the Wolfman case, it lasted for some years and it wasn't necessarily at all as successful as what happened with Ratman. Because we have to remember that with Ratman, he, his Freud's main complaint, which is double-edged or ironic, is that successful cases, right? because they're successful, because the therapy is successful, don't allow for more material to come discovery, to light for right. scientific discovery. Yeah. So with the Wolfman, I think we'll see a little, we'll have to see what happens with that. And we'll have to be thinking about the different, the different ways of theorization that Freud will bring, not only because the, the Ratman case comes almost 10 years later in writing, that's 1918, I believe, um, but also because he will emphasize the the neurosis aspect much more over the obsessive parts that the okay. wolfman will not fall into the same ticks and categories that the rat uh-huh. man will um, so i think it'll be fascinating to see to juxtapose 
yeah. these these two feral creatures right. off against one another. I look forward to it. We'll wrap up there. This will be the uh, Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins signing off for the week.